Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and today we are joined by Julian McKenzie, who covers the Flames for The Athletic and hosts the Chris Johnson Show, uh, which is such a good podcast uh, that everyone should check out, and of course, his stuff at The Athletic. So thanks so much for for coming on, Julian, and taking the time. Uh, thanks so much for having me, man. Uh, hopefully you're enjoying uh, the Stanley Cup playoffs. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm weird this way. I'm a Jets and a Sens fan, so one team's been... How are you both? That's like two of the most random Canadian franchises you could be a fan of. It's I grew up in I'm from Ottawa, born raised, but my dad's from Winnipeg, and the team came back. I'm like probably one of two people that have this weird conundrum. So uh, I don't know what I'd do if they make it uh, and play in the Stanley Cup Finals, but I don't think that's going to happen probably in my lifetime. But if it does, that'd be. I mean, I don't know. The Jets are still good. The the Sens are knocking on the door. There is a reality where that could happen it's not that likely but like yeah yeah next year yeah i don't know maybe if <sighs> maybe i think they're going in opposite trajectories yeah but, uh, it's next year might be a bit of a stretch maybe like 15 20 years or something i don't know yeah i don't know exactly but uh but at least uh, i have the jets to cheer on tonight so i'll be staying up uh way late to to see them hopefully maybe sneak a win tonight uh, so first julian i first want to ask you when did you first want to think uh when did you first think about pursuing a career in sports journalism probably when i was like six years old um it was something i really wanted to do for a really long time uh i would like play sports video games and like write like fake articles off of the games i was playing um yeah i was i was really young and and then i i went through high school with that still with that same ambition i had like my own like blog and actually some of my friends were, were reading it and stuff too and uh i did um a university degree at concordia in, in, in journalism got a master's degree at syracuse as well hmm. uh the first uh journalism class i ever took was in cjep uh, i went to marinopolis hmm. college before i did university and i had a teacher by the name of uh, monique polak who wrote you sometimes wrote for the montreal gazette and uh, I had internships for a while too. And yeah, it was just, it's something that I've wanted to do for a really long time, whether it was writing or, or being on TV or doing radio or now we've evolved to podcasts and stuff. So yeah, it's something I've wanted to do for a really long time. And, and how did you get started? Like you mentioned that you went to school to Syracuse to Concordia. How did you get started in the industry after that? I know that you got a scholarship um, with Sportsnet for a piece you wrote about Concordia and, and Bishops and a basketball team, but yeah, yeah, that uh, story. Uh, I also I, I really enjoyed that story. That was um, a former member of the Stingers men's basketball team had transferred the summer prior uh, to uh, Bishops, and I was trying to write about their first game uh, back at Concordia, playing against their former coach and a couple of former teammates, and. Yeah, that ended up winning a uh, uh, ten grand from Sportsnet, and uh, I actually put that money towards uh, my Syracuse tuition, which oh, wow. uh, was not a lot, but uh, you know, it still helped in some way. But the biggest thing for me with that was uh, getting to. Um, I got to visit Sportsnet later that summer after I won the the money, and I met the the president at the time, Scott Moore, and got to meet a couple people who were working at Sportsnet at the time. Like, um, well, I got to sit it on uh, Bob McCown show for about an hour and a bit and chopped it up with some of the producers. I uh, got to visit the Tim and Sid set when they were still Tim and Sid. And I think that was about maybe a couple of weeks after they had just started being on TV with the show that they had. Oh, wow. So that was cool. I, I saw, I think I remember Arashma Danny being there and mm-hmm. I met with a few other execs and stuff. And I think at that point, uh, before I had won that scholarship, I, I knew I still wanted to be in sports media, but I wasn't sure if, the work I had done to that point was going to bring me anywhere because I knew that while I did have, I think at that point I was interning with TSN radio in Montreal and was trying to get an internship with CTV Montreal. I don't remember if that was, I think it was, was that summer too, just opportunities to to work in sports in Montreal on the Anglo side are a bit limited, but I think just to get that recognition from Sportsnet and to have the opportunity to meet execs and be on the radar that kind of gave me a little bit of, of hope that if I continue to work, there are going to be people uh, from across the country who are going to be paying attention to my work. So I think that that helped a lot, but a lot of different internships uh, while I was in school, work at the school newspaper as well. Uh, my time at uh, Syracuse, I interned for the AHL team there, the Syracuse oh, Crunch yeah. too. Um, 
taking in taking part in some classes with sports media play by play just trying to get myself involved just trying to just work as hard as i can and just getting my name out there it was a lot of a lot of work and i'd like to think it's paid off to this point and 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 what did you do kind of after you visited sportsnet like what maybe what advice would you give to to young journalists coming up where that now you're working at the athletic and and you've worked for a, a lot of publications but what advice would you give just keep working um keep an open mind for opportunities that might not necessarily be um uh, not necessarily be but i would think that uh if you're going into it thinking you just want to work in one medium and just cover one thing you're just kind of limiting yourself and you just have to open yourself up to to so many other possibilities like i i worked in weather for ctv for like three years which was a really wild experience but i learned a lot about talking off script and and being in front of a camera and it was really fun working at that place and really really fun working with the people there and 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 getting that recognition too you go to a supermarket and older ladies are mm-hmm. looking at you and be like you're the guy from tv like that was that was a yeah. that was a fun period in my life uh but yeah just stuff like that and 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 i got to work in news for a bit too and do news stories and i got to improve that side of my journalism arsenal i guess and just tried not to limit myself and then when the opportunity came to work at the athletic i started as an editor and i saw that as a way I thought I thought a lot about that because of the opportunities I had at the time, but I saw that as a way in, and uh, that worked out. And and now I ended. Now I'm here in Calgary, and it's uh it's been pretty it's been a pretty surreal last few years, but uh, I'm glad it's working out. I'm glad it's going okay. And and if people don't know, you work you covered the Habs for for many years. What was that like to to cover? Are you? I don't know if you're from Montreal, but what was it like? I am. To, yeah. What was it like to cover maybe your hometown team in, in the Habs? It was wild. It was cool. I got to sometimes uh, make appearances uh, and cover games for the Canadian press. Mm-hmm. Um, the Montreal Gazette, I, I got to run a live blog for them. So that was also another way for me to kind of hang around the team as well. And, and Yahoo Sports for a while before they had me do video stuff in zone time, I was able to write stuff every week. So there were other opportunities there. And then when the Athletic approached me about uh doing a column during the 2021 run i thought it was just like a cool thing i could just do for a week or so and just give myself an opportunity to do some bylines and get them up at the athletic and then they went on the run that they did and then i got to go to a few games and go into the Stanley Cup final that's that's still a highlight of my journalism career it's it's something that's going to stay with me for the rest of my life and I think in a way that kind of made me a bit because i think uh off of that i think i'd like to think that my bosses kind of identified right away that okay this guy has what it takes to maybe do a beat one day and and be counted on to write consistently and uh, i had all these different places hit me up for interviews and radio hits and that that summer i think i got to be on tim and sid for the first time so like that that summer that summer made me you know like i I, i'm not a fan of Montreal canadians i i haven't been a fan of them for for a couple of years but like selfishly for myself, like seeing them succeed, like that made me happy because more and more people wanted me to do stuff. And I, I just tried to take advantage of that run the best way that I could. And also at that time, too, we were just getting out of of being in a curfew during the pandemic. And those were some tough times and seeing a lot of people be happy in the city and and, and get behind this team. That's that's something that that's that's a really cool story. And uh, I will never forget that. Can I just ask quickly? Do you have a favorite team, and or is there a team? No, nah, I not anymore. Like I, I grew up a Canadians fan. I think when I was really young, I like I liked watching different teams. When when you grow up in in Montreal and you're primarily anglophone, and you're not necessarily watching like Radio Canada and some of the other French channels on Saturday nights when you're watching CBC you're watching hockey night in Canada instead of watching like a Canadians game, unless the Leafs are on, you're watching Leafs send. So I watched a, a lot of those games and I was like eight or nine years old. But then like in 2005, I, I grew up after the lockout. I was like, all right, I'm going to watch FDS games and yeah. actually practice French. And that's actually the superior way to watch games in Montreal. Mm-hmm. Honestly, like, you know, no disrespect to the TSN crews or Anglo crews who come in for sports net, but like he listening to, to Pierre and, and Marc Denis, uh, you know, call a game in the week. Uh, for LDS, like that is the best way to watch a game. They have some of the best calls in the game. Uh, it, it generally is like a really like if generally if you don't know French that well 
and you want to learn it, like watch a Canadians game on LDS. Like you'll you'll catch up with some French terms, you'll learn French terminology for hockey games, and like you'll truly feel like the 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 passion. I know that's like a Leafs term, but like that's uh-huh. that's fun. But um, yeah, no, I I I was someone who watched a lot of hockey growing up, and uh, uh, once I started writing for like Habs Eyes on the Prize, I want to say twenty seventeen. Actually, even before then, like when I left for Syracuse, I stopped being a Canadians fan. And mm-hmm. I almost kind of thought I wasn't really going to watch hockey that much when I was in the States. And then the internship with the crunch happened and then Habs Eyes on the Prize happened. And I just figured, OK, like having fandom as I write and produce content isn't going to work. And I think it served me well to this point just to not have a biased view yeah. of things. Yeah, I mean, just to quickly, when you talked about the LDS, I can always, uh, I, my grandmother was French and I'd always hear, eh, the v, like all that, I'd always remember that. So definitely yeah. a great experience uh, watching that. I, I want to ask a little bit about your process and, and you mentioned not being biased. What is your, maybe your your process for writing? Um, It really depends on the story. I mean, there are times when an idea just pops up right away and I kind of go unconscious for maybe like an hour or two. And I just have the idea and I, I just kind of have it in my head and I'm just trying to layer it the way that I want to. Um, one thing I always like doing, if there's something really interesting or really weird or really peculiar, like even if it's, if it's like the most minute detail, but like I just find it interesting and I think there's a way I can write it, like that's probably going to be my lead. Like the other day I wrote about how uh, Jonathan Huberto in Calgary, uh, Sportsnet 960 has these random little like radio ads or bumpers, as we would call them in radio, where they'll they'll mention a player's name and they'll play uh, like the audio call of a highlight yeah. from a game. And Jonathan Huberto's own has this is this spinning assist from preseason, which still plays on radio, which I mean, I like you hear it. You think, oh, yeah, like you must be doing well. That's a great assist. But the fact that that might be the best play of his last year, that's not necessarily a good thing. And I just tried to focus on that and try to explain basically the way I explained it to you now. So it's just little stuff like that, that, you know, even if I just find it very interesting, if I can add some light to it, I try to use that as a hook or an entry point, just trying to work off that. And then from there, I'm just able to kind of flesh out some details and just, if I get some interesting quotes from people that helps too, but yeah, if I'm going really well, it's it's usually like that. Sometimes I I struggle and and I'm trying to write an idea. I have times where I think I have a good idea and then maybe 600 words through, I'm like, no, nah, this idea is stupid. And I'm just frustrated. I'm procrastinating for two hours. I'm in my bedroom on my laptop, just, I don't know, just trying to make an idea work. And sometimes it doesn't, but sometimes I find a way to make it work anyway. Something kind of clicks in my head and then the wheels start turning again and yeah, it's a it's a it's a weird process, but um, it it works. People read the content, so uh, I'm happy about that. And to to further that, how do you develop and and maybe maintain relationships with players and management, but also find a way to be critical and be objective about kind of the teams or or the management and the decisions on the ice? Well, building relationships with everybody whether it's management or whether it's players i mean you have to come at it from a position of respect i mean i i think there are times you see in the locker room where some guys will talk to certain players and i think everyone's allowed to crack a joke every now and again and act a little buddy buddy every now and again but i think everyone sort of understands that whether it's the players whether it's management whether it's journalists they're kind of loyal to themselves their their own fields and their own uh parties so to speak and i mean if you're not critical, you're going to be accused of a homer or someone who carries the water for a team. And that's going to diminish your credibility. Um, there's a balance you kind of have to to follow. I think sometimes in, in your writing where you try to be critical, but also if you're able to point out things that are good, um, that are worthwhile to talk about, I, I think that also just kind of adds to that balance as well. Uh, but relationships are everything because if you're able to, uh, connect with players, connect with agents, connect with management, and establish that level of trust. It could pay off with a scoop. It could pay off just having a good relationship for as long as you're a reporter in that city. And at the end of the day, it's all about building credibility in this job. It's so it takes so long to 
build it. And I'm finding that for myself as someone who's in their first full-time beat job and just catching up to all the people to meet. Like I got lucky in terms of the people I got to meet. Like when I, when it was announced, I was, uh, I was getting, I was getting, I was moving to Calgary. I think one of the first people, one of the first people who called me was Brad Living. Like he wow. called me out of nowhere. I don't know. He got my number and he just wow. said, Hey, welcome to Calgary. And congratulations on the opportunity. And like right there, like I, I got it. Like I, I was, I was worried thinking, okay, I'm going to have to meet him at the press conference. I'm going to have to figure out a way to get the number, talk to PR about that. But no, he, he called me and uh, he treated me with respect and, and acknowledged me as a professional and, uh, that's something that's going to stay with me for a very long time. And uh, that's, that's all I want. You know, I'm not looking for preferential treatment or anything like that. Like I just want to be treated like a, like someone who is worthy and deserving of respect. Cause I know I try to give that out to whoever I talk to. And I hope that uh, people feel the same when they talk to me. What's been the biggest adjustment for you moving to, to Calgary and, and covering that you mentioned making connections. What else maybe has been a hard thing to, to, to adjust to i'm not sure about stuff that's hard i guess the hardest thing i mean i do get like homesick and stuff you know just wishing i was home being with family and friends and just being in the city of montreal but calgary is a really nice city uh there's a lot of great people here uh, a lot of people are very nice uh the weather is actually not bad it's probably mm-hmm. the sunniest place you can you can be in especially now where we've passed through daylight savings time and it'll be like 6 30 in the morning and this bright sun is in your face yeah. <laughs> um yeah, I'm still kind of curious about the warmth. People say like 25 degrees is hot here. But then again, the fact that it's like a dry climate may also play into that. But um, in terms of other actual adjustments to my job, um, I wish I, I know I got to travel a little bit last year. And I think through that, it was it was cool to just see the team in a different light and be in different spaces with them. But I think almost any opportunity I get to talk to a player or just make a connection with them. I'm trying my best to, to do that or, or management or, or anyone like that. Uh, the fan base is also an adjustment. I mean, I think flames fans are a very unique bunch. They, they come across as a group of people who have been hurt a lot by mm. how the franchise has been run in, in recent years. Mm. Uh, they can be a little, um, we're not jaded or passive, but I, I think the way that they conduct themselves, they don't, so a lot of fans don't allow themselves to get sucked into false hope, like maybe okay. a Leafs fandom or, or Canadians fandom. And as a result, sometimes when it, when it comes time for them to just check out the team, a lot of them will do it. Um, it's, 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 it's fine. There are diehards, so to speak, but it's very unique compared to some of the other fan bases around the league. They're definitely passionate people. But I think there are probably a few of them who wish that a few more people were passionate. But I also think some of those people probably feel the way that they do because, you know, I think aside from their their run in where they won in 89, they feel a lot of it has just been patch job after patch job and hoping that a team can go beyond itself. And there's there's been a lot of again, I meant there's been a lot of hurt. I think there's some people who are still who still haven't completely recovered from Johnny Gaudreau and Matthew Kachuk leaving. You know, those are two, I think if it wasn't clear when they were in Calgary, it's clear now those are two superstar players in the National Hockey League. And the Flames had them both and they weren't able to keep them just as they were turning into full-blown superstars. So, yeah, I, I think just uh, just kind of writing content and, and, and seeing what works with them and, and what doesn't work, that's, that's, that, has been, that, that has definitely been a process over these last few months. Uh, I want to switch a little bit to, to your um podcasting and i know you you're on a bunch of different podcasts so i'm just going to focus on the chris johnson show if that's okay but but um that's the one i listen to a lot and what are some of the things that you think are key to make a podcast work it's a good question uh i think knowing what you want to talk about i think that's the most important thing see if you're if you're starting a podcast on your own or if you and your friends are starting a podcast just trying to figure out what works, trying to figure out what you want to talk about. You know, you don't necessarily want to be all over the place and also just sticking with it. There's a lot of people who start podcasts and they see the views after four or five episodes and they're like, well, well, screw this. Like, why am I putting all my effort and time into this? If I'm not even good enough to get a manscaped ad or something, or, you know, I want to do this podcast, but like this other friend of mine is not always available to do it. So, you know, 
what's the point? I think just a big key with podcasts and the two keys, I guess, is to just know what you want to talk about. And if you're able to stand out with your topic, that helps you. But just sticking with it, because at the end of the day, being in front of a microphone and, and leading a podcast and talking about stuff, those are reps. If that's something you want to do, I think those are just great opportunities for you to hone your craft and and get a sense of what works for you, how you want to build a show. I think I've learned a lot of that stuff from not just doing the CJ show, but some of the podcasts I had done before that opportunity even came about. So yeah, I think for anyone who wants to do a podcast, just stick with it and, and just know what you want to talk about. Well, I, I try to do that as best as I can. So I hope the listeners uh, enjoy it. And um, I, I want to switch a little bit to um, diversity in hockey. And obviously you're a person of color. And how do you feel about the current state of the NHL and, and hockey in general with regards to diversity? Uh, there's always work that can be done, even if the league will try to say that it's done its part and 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 there are initiatives out there sort of separate from the NHL, like the HDA that exist. There can always be more work done in terms of um, how players can be treated, how they're viewed, how they're marketed, how, uh, you know, if something happens, what resources are available for them, what the league itself is doing to make the game more accessible, um, the personalities that they push as well. I, I think obviously a lot can be done in terms of the media, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's cool to do a show like Zone Time and then look around and see like Tic-Tac-Tomar and, yeah. and Avery and, and Sam and Arun Surinavasan and just know like, hey, this is a this is a pretty unique show where, you know, maybe it's not as listened to as the Chris Johnston show, but, no. you know, people who look like us who want to find a space in in hockey in the hockey world, they can look at a show like ours and say, hey, you can you can do this. So, um, yeah, I think while I think there are steps that can be taken to improve and enhance and focus on diversity when it comes to, to when it comes to hockey, I like where things are, but I know things can be better. And and as someone in the industry, do you feel it's getting better for for people of color to kind of break in? And, and was there maybe a role model or someone you looked up to growing up um, in the industry? Um. I think having things like the Professional Hockey Writers Association Mentorship Program, uh, people like uh, Pepe Delphine uh, have been leading that charge and ensuring that, uh, you know, young POC reporters, just young reporters, period, are able to uh, work with other mentors and, and get opportunities for them to get in. That's that's a step in the right direction. Um, in terms of a, a, a mentor or someone I looked up to, Growing up, that's a bit of a tough one. I just, it's its hard to say there was like one, particularly mm-hmm. in journalism, just just whatever internships or spots I was at, there would normally be someone who would just kind of take notice of me and would give me advice. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say they were the yeah. mentor, but there were different points in my life where I sought advice from somebody and they were receptive. Like I remember talking to David Amber, I think before mm-hmm. and after I graduated from Syracuse and they were generous mm-hmm. with their time. And uh, we corresponded for a while and, you know, like we still see each other on Twitter and stuff. We haven't actually met in person, which would be oh. cool one day. Um, but yeah, people like him, a uh, Cabby Richards, I have to mention Cabby. He's mm-hmm. somebody who I had the pleasure of meeting. Maybe it's, a, has it been a decade, almost a decade mm-hmm. when I was still in university and, uh, I remember he was doing a student university um, conference. He was a guest for it in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. And all these different kids from all these different student newspapers across the country converge for these three days where we're sitting in on all these different speakers talking. And Cabby, who was still at TSN at the time, he does this panel and all these people are are trying to get in and they're, they're trying to hear, hear all. He basically just told stories the whole time <laughs> about his process and how we got into the game and stories with him and like Michael Jordan and, and Kobe Bryant on the helicopter and stuff. And I remember him leaving and just a whole mass of people are just following him into the lobby. They're just chasing him and following him. And, and he's, he's taking their time with all of them in the lobby, he's giving them the time of day, cracking jokes, talking to them. And I remember going to hug Cabby and 
he was wearing this like really like invigorating cologne like that stands out in my nose a lot but we're like hugging each other like yo man thanks and he starts counting like one mississippi two mississippi (laughs) like that's the kind of dude that he is and he gave me his phone number after i was like what like really like you you're gonna do this like yeah and um yeah we've been uh we've been friends uh I mean, you know, just he's somebody that I can always text. And uh, I've, there's been times randomly where I'll just be like, hey, I saw you on TV or can you believe that happened or anything like that? He gave me advice before I left to Calgary, too. And uh, he's he's a great resource. There's there's people like him and other people locally and across the NHL world who have been really great with their time. Uh, a lot of people who have opened doors for me for different opportunities, different editors, different writers as well who have also been generous with their time. Uh, Arpin Bassu also comes to mind with The Athletic too. He he basically uh, pushed for me to uh, apply for a job to join The Athletic, and he also pushed for me to uh, make the Calgary thing happen. It was mm-hmm. I had lunch with him and, and Marc-Antoine Gaudet, and that meeting ultimately led me to say, you know what, I'm going to make the decision to move. And I remember being at the airport on the day I was leaving, September 15th, and Arpin was was flying to Buffalo for I think a, for something regarding the Canadians, and he ran to my gate. And he saw me there, and he gave me a big hug, and he met my parents, and uh, he ran back off to his flight. And uh, I was I was really grateful for that, and grateful for him for for what he was able to impart on me during our time together in Montreal. And uh, yeah, so a lot of people. It's hard to nail down one person, but uh, I'm really grateful for everyone who's taking the time to invest in my development. No, no, that, that's a really cool story. And I think a lot of people can really try to maybe not emulate, but try to take you as an example to in your own career. I am definitely as well. Um, I want to, to, to segue as best as I can to the NHL. And I have a, I have a fun question. I know Ian and, and Sean McIndoo, your colleagues always have kind of uh, quirky questions and mine's probably a bit basic on that front but i'm always curious and if you were the nhl commissioner for one day what rule would you change julian no more offside reviews i can't stand them they're terrible i don't like the idea of uh a zone entry happening and then it's been a whole 30 40 seconds and then a goal happens and then someone's like ah that was offside ah you should have stopped in the moment i think they're stupid uh that would be the very first thing i'd get rid of i don't know if there's a limit on on rules I can change, but that would be the very first thing I would do everything I can to uh, eradicate that rule from the rule book. And I guess just try to develop whatever marketing strategies that are possible to uh, improve the quality of the game and have more people who are casual to watch the game. Mm-hmm. You know, a friend of mine was a, uh, well, I don't, actually it was Adam Wilde who was texting me about oh. how um uh, there was like a post on the ESPN sports center Instagram feed during the first day of the playoffs yesterday on Monday. And it seemed as if the only thing they posted was like a photo of like NBA players wearing NHL jerseys. <laughs> and I think if you're, if you, and I wondered aloud, like if you're, if you're the NHL and you see the, that ESPN, yeah, they have the coverage, but in terms of their role in pushing it on their social platforms, like how do you feel about the work that they've done so far? Like, how do you feel hearing Stephen A. Smith on first take, which is their big, debate show how does it feel hearing him say the only thing i know about hockey is that the puck is black like yeah Yeah. is that good for for your network that you invested all that money that that invest all that money in your product like i i don't know so yeah yeah, i i would try to find ways to to work around that no i i actually listened to adam wild and they talked about the fanatics and the jerseys and it didn't seem like that was marketed very well um my my this might be kind of a bit too nuanced but with the the offside rule i like i'm a big tennis fan and i just don't get the idea that you challenge once and then you lose it either way or no no you keep it but i just i find it the whole thing weird and um i agree with the offsides i've been to a bunch of games this year with a sense scored against the leafs beautiful goal tie game and then it's gone and you have to kind of delay your reaction so i, I definitely agree with that yeah, um, I, I like the ten. I like the tennis challenge system for what it's worth. Like you're, you're able to. I don't know if you have a limit on those, but like I just do. the way that's done. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's. But at the very least, it's it's quick. It's efficient. It's actually sort of exciting to see the the radar and see if the ball if it's gonna hit the line. Like, oh, like that's yeah, actually yeah. that's fun. It's yeah. cool. You get in, you get out. It's done. We move on to the next point. Like, I, there's obviously no way to have it that fast. 
in other sports, but tennis has found a way to make it right. I feel they maybe should just have like a 30 second rule. If you can't have a decision within 30 seconds, it's whatever the call on the ice was. Cause I find it just, why waste five minutes? But anyways, that's, I guess, but at the same time, like what worries me is that sometimes you think it should be that way. And then the refs might get it wrong. And then yeah. all of a sudden it's like, Oh, well, but we didn't see it in the 30 seconds. So bye. Yeah, like, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like you kind of sometimes like, like, while I understand people get upset at refs for taking four, five minutes to get a call and they say, well, if it's not done right or if it's not conclusive, like it's inconclusive, like you have to go with that. Yeah. And I agree with that. But if you shorten the amount of time refs have to make a decision, isn't that going to lead them into more rushed decisions? Yeah. Or if they just say, well, it's inconclusive, but maybe if they took a little bit more time, they would have figured out that it would have been conclusive. I don't think that's right either. I think there needs to be a certain amount of time that the refs can use to get it right. And ultimately the big thing should be that we like, they should be able to get these things right. But I don't like the idea of something happening so far down in the, in the queue of plays that have happened or, or, or chain of command or whatever. And then you're like, Oh no, we have to go back on this play that happened a minute ago. Like I, I don't, I don't like that. Yeah, no, no, I totally agree. And, it's just like such slim margins. Like it's not, it's that new Duchesne one that happened. What was it like five, 10 years ago that everyone. Yeah, Matt Duchesne ruined it for everybody. Exactly. Exactly. Now let, let's get into the flames. Of course, the team you covered, as we've mentioned, uh, shoot. Um, and obviously Brad tree living uh, and the flames mutually agreed to part ways. What do you make of his departure and what's next for the flames organization? I think for Brad, it seemed as if after all those years at the helm and going through the year that he went through and stuff, I, I'm inclined to think that, you know, after the way that the year went, it was time for him to go. Not because he didn't necessarily do a good job. I think in his mind, he just felt that it was his time to go. What was really confusing was hearing Don Maloney, you know, kind of paint that picture that I think Brad kind of went through the season that he had. And he said, you know what? It's time for me to just relax and kind of head on out of here and, and not necessarily want to come back. But then you hear John Bean just tries best to, you know, ha just harp up the fact that it was a mutual parting of the ways. And sure, you know, you could see a season like that and maybe John B might think, okay, well, you know, maybe it is right to move on. But this is a guy who, you know, Bradshaw living, there were discussions about an extension through the year and he could have taken an extension that could have happened. It didn't. I I don't know. I, I think for the Flames, uh, they're now in a position now where they have to find the right successor. But I don't think it'll matter as long as Daryl Sutter is there. And Daryl Sutter is a man who has a lot of power in that organization. And unless the Flames are willing to swallow eight, eight plus million dollars over the next two years, he'll likely be back as head coach. And whoever is the GM they're going to have to work with Daryl and they're probably going to have to accept the fact that Daryl is going to have final say on a lot of stuff. So I don't know if this is a general manager job, if Daryl stays where it's going to give you all of the decisions and personal decisions you want. Cause at the end of the day with Daryl, with the power that he has having a direct line of ownership, essentially it's, it's something I would think about if I was approached with the idea of being general manager of the team like how much power am i going to have in comparison to the head coach and is the head coach going to be able to usurp me on a bunch of other decisions with the roster and all that like those are questions i have and at least just while we don't have everything in writing in terms of everything that daryl has in terms of power that is the general perception and at least we've gotten rumblings out of that that may be because of how this year went with the with the with whatever was going on between Sutter and tree maybe that plays a role in tree leaving. And I think for anyone else who looks at that situation and wants to know what's going on, the head coach being there, that's the first thing that needs to be dealt with. And and how, how likely would you say that he is back? Like it, it sounds as though you mentioned that ownership doesn't want to pay the bill, but how likely do you think it is that he'll, he'll be the coach of the Calgary flames next year? Well, that would also has to be considered too is that Don Maloney says he is reviewing everything, uh, the interim GM and, and president of hockey operations, and he's supposed to be speaking to Senator this week. It's not impossible that the Flames say, okay, we're going to swallow that eight, that eight plus million and and just have a clean slate. But even then, even in my eyes, like I, 
Like, what would really surprise me is if Tree Living and Sutter are gone and they completely change house with everyone there. And while I think some people would see that as a good thing, at the same time, one of the biggest things, one of the biggest storylines for this Flames team last year was how all this, all these changes came about and everyone was struggling and adapting to change. If you clean house with everyone in the front office and in the coaching staff, you I are you gonna have the same problem? Maybe not the same results as last year, but I think that's also that has to that's something that might have to be uh considered in all of this. So I wonder if the Flames, if they said, okay, well, Daryl's gone, but they call up Mitch Love from the AHL, or they let Ryan Huss go to their assistance coach, or Kirk Muller, even, right? Like I wonder if changes are supposed to come to the organization. What is the full extent of that? Is it just a situation where people are promoted from within? So there's at least some kind of continuity, which, well, I understand that some people would be a little turned off by because it might be propagating some of the same stuff that kind of has them in the position that they're in. For those new players who are trying to adapt, there's still something they can build upon in terms of a style or a strategy. And I think definitely they'd benefit off of, a, of, an, off of an environment change, but I, I wonder about if too much change on that front affects how the players play too. And and of course the the Flames had a very tumultuous season, barely missing the playoffs. Thank you, because that made my Jets come in. But who's the most culpable to blame for their poor season? If you had to pinpoint one thing, obviously it's a culmination of things. But was it the coaching, the players, the management? What who do you think was the most culpable? If you're gonna have to pick one, I guess it's goaltending because. The the forwards being as they were, they still found themselves in opportunities where they're able to get some production at times. If the goaltending was just maybe 10% better, they're probably a playoff team. They get a few more points and they make the playoffs. Yeah, you could look at some of those overtimes where, you know, the, on all those one goal losses uh, that they incurred. And I think at different points, honestly, you you could point at somebody different every night. Maybe the defense didn't play all that well or the big guns on the team, they didn't score enough when they needed to. A lack of a game breaker was very evident with this Flames team. But if you have to pick, I, I think you kind of have to go towards Jacob Markstrom and, and Dan Vladar and that tandem being under 900 in terms of safe percentage, that's not going to cut it. You know, I know John Bean went to Jacob's defense and hyped him up as a Vezina nominee the year prior. He was not a Vezina nominated goaltender this year, and he needs to be better, especially at the price tag that he's at with the no-move clause that he has as well. He needs to be better. Do you think the Flames will address goaltending this offseason? Like, is is it going to be Vladar and Markstrom next year? Or like, how likely do you think that is the case? Well, again, there's a no-move clause with, with Markstrom. I think the question is, is, is Dustin Wolf uh, ready to play with the big club next year. And I think what complicates things is the fact that you have Jacob Markstrom there, who as long as he's there, he is your number one goalie. And I think if you're the flames and you see how well Dustin Wolf has been playing, you're either taking the path that says he stays in the American hockey league another year and you let him dominate, or he's your backup goaltender and he doesn't get to play as many games, but you still have him in the lineup just in case something happens, which means you're moving on from Dan Vladar who you just extended to a new deal to, but also, I mean, he's showed some promise in certain steps, but I mean, the safe percentage again, just some of the others, just the, the goals against average as well, not great. So I don't know uh, where you're thinking if in terms of a return, maybe that's something to consider, but I think in terms of goaltending, there is a question that's going to have to be asked with regards to what direction they want to go. And Obviously, you mentioned that the Fords also, almost all of them other than maybe Tyler Toffoli had down years. Um, and obviously, their big offseason signings of Huberdeau and Kadri both had underwhelming seasons. Do you think maybe their total, like the overall forward play is an indication that a lot of these players are regressing in age? Or is it that they just had a bad season and, and bad puck luck and bad goaltending? Maybe both could work. I think the fact that Kadri is above 30, I mean, I don't think he's going to play at that high level when he was with the Avs or even in his later years in Toronto. But also at the same time, this is a player who I think was tired after the short offseason he had a year prior. And I think it showed at different points. Uh, Jonathan Huberto clearly was adjusting to a new system, trying to play a new way. Uh, not getting the same looks that he was getting in Florida, not the same speed, not the same pace. 
It seemed to work out for McKenzie Weaker after a while, but he even had his own uh, growing pains to start the year. Yeah, I, I think just the fact that uh, some of those guys are in their prime and are closer to exiting their prime now, there's almost there's only so much time you have with those guys left before uh, they kind of wilt like pumpkins a little bit, so to speak. But even then, uh, that also depends on the supporting cast too. And and this summer and next, there's a lot of questions to be asked about Elias Lindholm, uh, Michael Backlund, Chris Tanev, all those UFAs who will be UFAs next year. Uh, if those guys aren't kept around and you kind of have to keep Huberto and Kadri and weaker, you kind of put yourself in a position where the team might not be that good, but it might not be bad enough to be like where Columbus is this year or Anaheim if you're putting yourself in the draft lottery. So that's a very interesting situation that they're going to have to deal with down the road. And you mentioned like they have all the UFAs going into next year, not this off season. So, and I know I forget who it was if, um, if it was Dean, but, or Bean, sorry, but someone said at the press conference that they didn't want to rebuild or say the word rebuild. Is that something that you think is completely off the table with all those UFAs next year? Well, with, it should be noted too, uh, like three minutes after John Bean said, he doesn't like, he doesn't like using the word rebuild. He acknowledged that there was a possibility of rebuilding last summer with the whole Matthew Kachuk ordeal. So it's definitely something that, Maybe it's in this glass case that like you, you only open up in emergencies, but rebuilding is something that's in the back of, of Flames management's heads. And I think if you're in a position where uh, Lindholm wants out uh, or Backlin wants out or all those guys, there's like a mass exodus, especially if you leave that all to next year, you almost kind of put yourself in a position where if you're not doing a rebuild, you're doing the most creative advanced retooling I have ever seen. So Unless they figure out a way to, I guess, go sort of similarly do what they do with what they did with Matthew Kachuk, where they lose a player, but they're able to get assets who could help them win. Now you're facing a retool, you're facing pain, you're facing losing seasons after that. And do you think ownership and and do you think they'll they'll go in that direction, or do you think they'll stay maybe in the murky middle? There's it's tough to tell with this team. It's tough to tell if they're going to go that way. If if they, I, I would I would think that they would want to keep some of those pieces around, but I wonder if some of those pieces want to stay around. I think for a guy like Tyler Toffoli, he seemed pretty uh, he's pretty open to the idea of staying. For a guy like Elias Lindholm, he seemed a little bit more guarded, and I wonder if he's going to let next season play out before he makes a decision. In which case, the Flames might have to accelerate that process and make a move so they ensure that they get something for him and not lose him for nothing. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a bit tough to tell at this particular time. Do you think they're good enough or, or what, maybe what are the chances that they run this team back? A lot of people preseason thought they might even be a cup contender and just say, Hey, this was, was everything went wrong and, and go for it next year. And, and do you think they have the talent to maybe be a cup contender next year? I think that's what John Bean was sort of alluding to near the end of the press conference when he was saying that they had a lineup that underwhelmed and dashed out all that praise to Markstrom and their defense. I think that the organization believes they still have a lot of good pieces that could help them make lengthy playoff runs. And I think they would ideally want to build upon that. The only thing is, is that they have to be mindful of their salary cap situation over the next little while. They're pretty close to the limit with that for this year, even with, players like Milan Lucic coming off the books. So they'll have to be a bit creative and they'll probably, they're probably gonna have to move some salary out in order to accommodate a couple other pieces if they want to go that route. But if one other thing that was pretty indicative yesterday at the press conference, I think those who are in charge see this roster as a team that can get out of the murky middle and compete. They just need to massage a few things and just put the have a right system in place that could bring out the best in those players. So if if the season starts next year, what what do you think the expectations will be for the Flames when when puck drops? And it know? really depends on on who's behind the bench. I think it depends on what the roster looks like. It depends on it depends on certain things. Like it'll be it'll be too easy to tell with if if you're saying bring this entire roster back and have them go through another year. Oh, yeah. I have them as a team that probably misses the playoffs again, because mm-hmm. Vegas will still be good. 
Uh, all the teams in, in the Pacific Division that made the playoffs are still going to be good, and I don't expect that much of a drop-off. Um, so it's on Calgary to make their roster better and make it difficult with regards to trying to predict that Pacific Division. So I don't know if with the way that they all kind of play now, the energy that's around them, if you run back the season, maybe some of that puck luck goes their way, and maybe that helps too. But uh, I, I think it's clear that at least some tweaks have to be made just with some of the energy and 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 who's directing what. The power play was not good last year. I think that has to be changed above anything else in terms of a strategy, in terms of even who might be running things in that department. But I, I don't know if you need like full wholesale changes like what happened last season. But uh, if you're running back as is for this year, you're probably going to get the same thing. Uh, before before I let go, uh, before I let you go, I, I want to ask a little bit about. I know Mackenzie Weger talked about the Flames needing a new arena, and there's been a lot of battles between ownership and the city. Um, how likely do you think an arena deal happens in the next five, ten years? And maybe what's wrong with the Saddle Dome for people who might not know what's up with that the Saddle Dome? And I think in terms of a deal or an announcement on that. Um, I don't know if it's something that's going to take how many years before something gets resolved, maybe construction once it's done. But I think considering how apparently the last ones went where it looked very promising and that the very last second, essentially the carpet was pulled under the rug was pulled under, I guess, probably from the team standpoint. And that just ended up not working. I would think the faster a deal gets done, the better for everybody. Um, but I'm not inclined to think it's something that's going to take years. But in terms of why an arena like the Saddle Dome needs a replacement, it's very old, um, very uh, behind the times compared to other arenas like in Edmonton or in Colorado or in Vegas, even Montreal, which has been around for a bit too. Like they're still sort of modern in, in the way that uh, – you know, the seating sort of looks. I mean, the one thing I'll give the Saddle Dome, I think better than almost any other arena in the league from the press box, you probably have the best sight line to watch wow. a game. But uh, the fact that players go in and their locker room is not, like it looks like an away locker room. Mm-hmm. It's not, that's not that's not ideal. And I think some of that, uh, from what Mackenzie Week was trying to say, definitely is, is, is part of, why he spoke out the way that he did. I don't know if people remember the video from last yeah. offseason where he joined the team and he's looking around the room. Uh, I don't know how many people have seen it, but like the away locker room, which I think also doubles as the home locker room for the Calgary, um, the Roughnecks, the local lacrosse team here. It's objectively a better room. It huh. feels more spacious. Uh, it's it. Sometimes I look at it. I'm like, well, why didn't they put the flames room <laughs> in that room? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty old. Uh, <laughs> what's funny too, John B and I think, uh, well, either him or Maloney had made a joke about cell phone reception when they were <laughs> asked about the arena yesterday. So you could tell that, uh, even guys who work in the organization know that, uh, the arena has passed its prime. There've been stories written about how the top, it could start to crumble in uh-huh. some time. Like it's, it's, it's an arena that's been around for over 40 years. Yeah. Like if you look at old footage, from the Flames 2004 run and you see what the Saddle Dome looks like it's basically the same thing yeah yeah wow wow um I want to ask you obviously the Stanley Cup uh playoffs started yesterday um you're at the Athletic you you cover them uh they cover the playoffs as well what's your Stanley Cup pick and 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 uh maybe touch a little bit upon uh, the Leafs as well because I always think uh, you with SDPN and and all them always uh, it's interesting to know your your thoughts on the Leafs um I I've gone on record saying I think the Lightning are going to win in seven wow. I, and I'm I'm happy to I know that the Lightning are kind of being held by duct tape with the injuries that they have and and whatnot but until they completely fall flat I'm not picking them against uh, when it comes to the Leafs, I still think with the Leafs, there's a mental barrier they have to get over. It's not impossible for them to get over, and this would be an ideal year for them to do that. And I have no problem being wrong if that ends up being the case. But unless until they prove me wrong, I'm I'm inclined to pick uh, the Lightning in terms of a Cup final prediction. Um, I tried doing a bracket for myself yesterday, and this is a bit weird to say, especially since they lost Game One. 
yesterday, but uh, I think we might get a 2006 Cup final rematch. I think we're oh, getting wow. Edmonton. We're getting Edmonton, Carolina. There's something about the Boston team that look they look really good, but it is so hard to be this wire for wire winner. And I still think the Bruins, when they come up against a tougher opponent, whether it's Tampa, whether it's Toronto, whether it's uh, Carolina, they might still stumble at the gate. So if they make the final, that's really impressive. If they don't, I won't be completely surprised. But I think Carolina, I think a lot of people are not really paying as much attention to them. And I think they also have what it takes. I know the goaltending is a little bit of a question mark, but when they won the cup, Cam Ward was the guy, right? He came out of nowhere. You don't need the goaltender. You need a goaltender to get you to the Stanley Cup final. So uh, I'm inclined to say Edmonton, Carolina, and I'll say Edmonton in actually because man, Carolina's really good. They they've they've got some good players. I know they don't have Sveshnikov, but uh, having guys like Sebastian Ajo uh, being able to put the puck in the net, being able to suffocate opposing opposing teams in their offense, that's going to serve them well down the stretch. Uh, Edmonton, though, just the speed. They just have to ensure they don't play like what they did against the Kings where yeah. they kind of eased off the gas pedal and they can make the final. I, I was very much on Colorado, but I wonder now with yeah. all the injury troubles that they've had too, if they've just, they'll just run out of steam, but maybe I, I could be wrong on that too. So I'll say Edmonton, Carolina, and I will, I'd like to see Connor McDavid win. Maybe Carolina gets the better of them in seven games. Okay. Okay. That's pretty close. I, I had Edmonton, Boston, but um I, I and i had edmonton winning so i think uh we we see it a bit similarly i i really like carolina yeah. i think probably the- i think cj has the same thing i think edmonton oh, wow. boston is I, probably cj's pick at least from twitter and i don't know if that's but i feel like a lot of people have done edmonton boston and i don't maybe a boston more than edmonton but that seems to be a very uh popular that'd brand. be a really cool final yeah yeah and it'd be like the throwback to the 80s and 90s when they played each other a couple times so that'd be Pretty cool. Uh, before I let you go, um, just the floor is yours. What are you working on? Anything you want to plug for the listeners that uh, they should uh, keep uh, their eyes and ears open for? Uh, what am I working on? Uh, just trying to make sense of whatever the hell happened in Calgary. I guess that's basically it. Uh, just follow me on Twitter, JK McKenzie. Uh, follow me on my Instagram, which is also JK McKenzie. Follow me. Um, I said Twitter. I said Instagram. Follow me at the Athletic. I guess mm-hmm. follow the CJ Show. Follow Zone Time. Subscribe to the Athletic Hockey Show. Yeah, I think that's enough. No, no, I, I, think, I think that's enough. I think. I think. Uh, I, the only thing I was thinking is, do you have a TikTok? But other than that, I think you've hit it. Nah, I, don't worry. It's... I don't think. It, I don't think anybody's gonna. Nah, I, my answer to that question is no. No, no, I've I've been dragged into it, and it's the worst thing for my brain. So you're you're not missing any out on anything. Well, thanks so much, Julian, for for taking the time and coming on. And uh, I'm definitely excited to see what the the Flames do this off season. I think it sounds like a lot of uh, things will happen on on that front. So uh, thanks so much for for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, I too am excited to see what the Flames do this off season. So when that all starts to bubble over. Uh... Hope I'm around to uh, cover it all and make some sense of it. Thanks again for having me. Thanks. Thanks, Julian.